Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The world has, over the last weeks, been following very closely and uh, with absolute horror what happened at the University of Idaho. Brian Kohlberger, criminology, criminology PhD candidate at Washington State University, was arrested and charged in the brutal murders of four University of Idaho students. The developments leading to the arrest and charges are many, and we're beginning to learn more about the police and scientific investigation which led to Kohlberger being arrested by an FBI SWAT team in the early morning hours of December the 29th. So we're going to be speaking about this uh, with Scott Duffy, retired supervisory FBI special agent, co-director of the Criminal Justice Institute at Wilmington University. Uh, Scott, thank you very much uh, for joining us. It's it, it, In the general scheme of things, when it comes to horrible situations such as this, uh, was the time frame between the discovery of the bodies and the arrest of Kohlberger, was that f- fairly consistent with what might have ex- might have gone on before? I, I, I think so, Roy. The, um, you know, it, it, a major crime happens. Maybe there's not a lot of news to it. There's not a lot of pressure on law enforcement to quickly make an arrest in in the general scheme of things. But here you have such a horrific crime compounded with the fact that Idaho state law requires no information be provided whatsoever. And so you're, you're talking about a, a horrific crime where people want to know, especially the local community in Moscow, Idaho. And, uh, and then of course, law enforcement with their hands tied to provide just, you know, enough information to, to the public. But I would say once the arrest was made and you look at the amount of work that went into it, especially with what we know now through the affidavit, I would say close to seven weeks was pretty quick for what they've been able to do and put together for a, um, for a charging document. Can you share with us what really stood out to you? as far as the cooperation between policing and science, and and they work hand in hand, of course, in in, in today's world, policing and science is a, is a combined um, discipline. What stood out to you about what was done, what was discovered, and how Koberger was discovered? I like the fact that you have a small 37-member police department in a rural community of Idaho, just a few minutes away from, you know, neighboring state of Washington. You have two universities at play here. So I can imagine not only the students, but many, many parents um, wondering what is happening during those seven weeks. But but here we have Moscow Police Department saying that they quickly received cooperation with the Idaho State Police. My guess is there are many other agencies that are not named in the chart in the affidavit. And, and of course, the FBI and the FBI seeing that they provided vital roles or um, role with regards to CAS, CAS, the cellular analysis surveillance team. And uh, it's an elite team of agents throughout the country that are able to really pick apart all the analysis that goes into um, phone tracking. And, and there's so much behind it. And so to, to, th- then to have the Idaho State Police, their crime lab, 
um, which is well known for for its uh, it, its its DNA lab and whatnot. So they're able to provide assistance, and you really have round the clock, twenty four seven investigators, analysts, scientists putting together what they believe um, leads to the suspect Brian Kober. So I I, I applaud the fact that. Um, you, you know, DNA, which used to be, it would take months, it would take weeks, it would take whatever, um, to, to be able to put something on such a fast track and come up with what they needed uh, to get to this point. Yes. So it's, it's a great cooperation. We've been hearing, Scott, um, information that the FBI and perhaps other police agencies may have been observing Koberger as he drove from Washington State to his parents' home in Pennsylvania with his father, and uh, it's been suggested that perhaps the um, the FBI asked Indiana police to stop Koberger and his father. They were stopped twice, as, as you know better than I. They were stopped twice by police on that drive from Washington State to Pennsylvania. Is it likely that that took place, that the there was police stops were made so they could do some observational work on Koberger? It's very possible, Roy, and and I've done that quite a bit in my career, having worked a task force, which is federal, state, and local departments working jointly to tackle a particular crime issue. And uh, very much in this case, you have federal, state, and local uh, law enforcement involved in what now we realize is a cross-country investigation. So it, it it's not it would not be shocking to me that the FBI uh, was able to provide, because they have a tremendous amount of resources in air and land to to be able to surveil uh, the suspect once he's identified, right? And we know, we, we, we believe from the affidavit he's identified within two weeks of, of uh, the crime. And, uh, and once you have that, you really want to put eyes on somebody like that. And and uh, not let them out of your sight. So, and especially with the cross-country trip from from the residents in Pullman, um, Washington, to to uh, near the Poconos in Pennsylvania, that requires a lot of resources. And so, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary for law for the FBI to be providing information and perhaps in in need of additional information and to have a car stop, especially uh, a traffic violation or an infraction. In order to get additional information, for example, who's in the car, we, you know, they could say, "Hey, we know there's two people in the car, but we're not sure who the other individual is, who's driving the car, and so and so forth." So it wouldn't be out of the ordinary. I did see reports that the uh, the agencies had said they had not been directed, but but the, it remains to be seen at the conclusion. I would imagine that perhaps um, local law enforcement uh, did act in um, in cooperation and furthering the investigation. Yeah, so this really was a national cooperative effort. And they wanted to see his hands, apparently, to see if there were any healing wounds on his hands because he would have been, uh, as I as I heard in a number of interviews, that he likely would have been cut himself while he was committing the murders. Yes, so it's such a violent act and, and from what we know, with a knife. So it would be very, very difficult to, uh, I would say, commit such a crime and not have any cuts on your own hands or arms. So, and and we're talking about now six, seven weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so he, wounds do heal quickly, and you want to be able to to capture whatever you can uh, 
um, if, if they knew that that a charging document and, and ultimately the day of arrest was not to happen anytime too soon. How do you deal with these terrible realities as police officers? You know, I've, I've covered many stories, many terrible situations as, an, as a journalist, as an investigative journalist, and worked with crime victims and crime victims' families. But it's not the, it's not the intense work that goes on as far as police investigations are concerned. How do you, how do you deal with the, the emotional uh, challenge, Scott, as a, as, a, as a lead investigator in a case like this? Yeah, that it. I would say there's a lot that goes in behind that. You have the lead investigator who, you know, is human and has to witness, has to walk through, has to remain at the crime scene and to see everything. It's one thing to see it in print. It's one thing to see it in pictures, but then to actually be inside a crime scene. And, uh, and, and so an investigator realizes, hey, I have a job to do. And that is to seek justice for these people that uh, cannot seek justice for themselves. For the witness, I know there were reports with regards to some shock about the very witness that's reported having come within inches of this suspected killer mm -hmm. and then to return to um, his or her room. Just, just that very fact of a victim that's been highly traumatized not knowing we don't we don't know how victims react they react in so many different ways so an investigator is in tune especially you know you could have an investigator who's got a couple of months on to someone who has been through quite a few crime scenes but i would imagine in this area this this itself as as shocking and horrific it is just the fact that you have a violent crime that has taken place in a community that probably does not see um is very tough on an investigator but they their, their eye on the ball, it's the goal to to find whoever did this and uh, to let the justice system ensure that they are put into custody and remain out of community's reach. Um, and, th and that's that also with regards to uh, victims assistance that not only goes to to assist the families, but also the investigators um, who have to uh, be in the middle of it and not be able to shake those pictures yeah. that are forever in their mind. Scott, I'm trying to, going to try to fit in a bunch of questions in a fairly short period of time. Could you start by, please t tell us what goes into serving um, the warrant on Kohlberger with the SWAT team at 3 a.m. Why? Sure. So the, the, uh, the crime itself obviously would dictate um, that, that the, uh, uh, an elite qualified team would be required for such an arrest. If it was a lower level crime, if it was a, a crime of nonviolence, you could have a knock and announce serving of a warrant by a detective or whoever, whatever um, uh, law enforcement agency throughout the country. Um, and as the crime uh, it increases, for example, here, a homicide, four homicides of such violence, um, it would typically a department weighs what it what it would uh, uh, with regards to the safety of their own personnel. And and so here a decision is made. Let's use a SWAT team. It looks like that the FBI SWAT team was utilized with uh, Pennsylvania State Police and other local law enforcement um, on scene. And so they are given the order. The the um, 
The team lead of a SWAT team would ensure that they have surveillance if there's any uh, blueprints of inside or outside the house, anything that could help them determine where it is they're going to enter, how they're going to enter, how many are going to enter with that SWAT team. Mm -hmm. And then to, uh, to be very quick in getting in the house, secure all personnel, any pets whatsoever, ensure that they have their suspect in custody, and then to exit the house. So how do you see the investigation into Koberger proceeding now? What would you be doing as an FBI agent? Were you assigned to the case? And what kind of relationship uh, do you have to foster with the suspect in order to get to the truth and assist in securing, uh, securing your conviction? Yeah. So so for with with regards to what is happening now, uh, many have said, and I would agree, that a lot of work was put into getting an affidavit, identifying the suspect, and then getting him arrested. But now the really hard work of securing testimony. So it's one thing to ask a witness um, uh, and get and get some identifications and whatnot, whatever it is that they might have seen or heard. And it's another thing getting that witness ready for for testimony in in a public arena. That is the courtroom. You have um, indicated in the affidavit that CAST was used. That's the FBI cellular analysis surveillance team where they're going to go through and pinpoint every imaginable um, location that that phone was going. And, and then you have to be able to put that phone beyond reasonable doubt, right? It's, it's one thing to have probable cause to go to a judge and say, I have probable cause that the suspect I've identified in this affidavit did my crime that I'm investigating. It's another thing to prove it to a jury of 12. And, um, and, and so, there's a lot that goes into putting all that to a point that the evidence will hold up in court. And uh, and I imagine there are tremendous more evidence and interviews that are not even mentioned in the affidavit. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, um, you have the rapport that's needed to build with the suspect. But unfortunately here, what do we have? We have a suspect that's arrested and uh, and there's a very small time window for the investigators to be able to get in front of that suspect, provide the necessary Miranda rights, and uh, to be able to either get a statement or not a statement. And um, and so the suspect has already been returned back to Idaho. Whether or not Idaho has had a secondary chance to interview um, Brian Koberger, I don't know. But um, if if that if that opportunity has passed. And the investigator would not be able to have a secondary um, shot at at being able to interview Koberger or Koberger decides at some point that he wants to waive his Miranda um, and speak with uh, investigators, you know, totally up to him. But okay. with regards to that, that that window of opportunity of an interview, that that pretty much was at the time of his arrest. Scott, we have about 30 seconds. Do you have any concerns? Do you think there'll be concerns about the Koberger family and their behavior, including his father driving across the country with him? I don't. I, th I think when we look at um, families always going to stick by their loved ones as well as they should. And, and for a father to go out and do the cross-country ride um, 
it, it that could have been something totally uh, planned well in advance and just so happens to be uh, the father went All out. Right. So I, I don't see anything out of the ordinary on that. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 